0: Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do give praise to your name this morning. (laughs) and We come before you, Lord, uh, humble and unable to offer anything to you except for our lives. Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus and all that you've done in each of our lives through him. Lord, thank you for your, your scriptures and the opportunity we have to walk through them and to try to understand them. And Lord, we understand that apart from your spirit giving us insight and wisdom and understanding that we could not understand anything that is written here. So Lord, we ask him, invite him to come in and to shine a bright light on your scriptures that we might understand them. And Father, in understanding them, may we then incorporate them into our thinking and the way we respond to the world and all that is happening, and may we have hope that these things that Daniel has written will ultimately be true, will be accomplished by you in your good time. So for that, Lord, we acknowledge your sovereignty and give you praise, and it's in the name of our Savior that we pray, amen. Amen. So, this is week number 39 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 9 and verse 24, and that's the only verse we looked at last week. It'll be the only verse we look at this week, and probably the only verse that we look at next week, and then we'll see about the next week. So, um, there's a lot in this verse. You remember that the setting is that Daniel has been praying until he became wearied, He had set aside a day for praying because of the words written in Jeremiah about the 70 year captivity. Daniel was praying and Gabriel comes in and interrupts him. At the beginning of Daniel's prayer, God called Gabriel to his throne, gave him a message, said, take this to Daniel. Apparently took him all day to get there. And so Gabriel comes in and interrupts Daniel in his prayer and says, Daniel, I have a message for you Um, And we looked at, and it's not stated, but it certainly implied that this message is the message from God the Father that he wants Gabriel to take to Daniel. And then as Gabriel begins to speak, he says, Daniel, there are 70 weeks decreed um, for certain things to take place. And these pertain, this is an important point, to the Jews and to Jerusalem not to everybody on the planet, not to all the areas on the planet, but to the Jews and to Jerusalem. And so um, Daniel uh, is standing there and listening. Gabriel begins to speak. And so we'll read verse 24 and see there are six specific things that God says, Gabriel says to Daniel that must be accomplished during this 70-week period. If you guys want some sheets, they're out in the foyer. Um, so Daniel 9:24 reads, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So six very specific things that must be accomplished during these 70 weeks. Not must be, but will be accomplished. Because the statement there is these things have been decreed, meaning that God has decreed that these things will be accomplished. And we talked about the fact that God's the only one who can make a decree about what's going to happen in his Creation and especially with people, because He's the only one who has the right and the power and the might to make things happen according to His good pleasure. No one else can orchestrate all the events of the world. They can affect little areas of the world, but they certainly can't um, destine mankind for certain things to happen. God does that, and He has been doing that since the beginning of the creation. He continues to do that today, and he will do that all the way to the end. So last week, we looked at this first statement where he says, to finish the transgression. And we talked about the fact that that transgression, that word, is a very specific technical term that's used in the Old Testament scriptures 93 times to speak of... um, the sin basically of rebellion against God. It would be to willfully not do the um, laws and the um, things that have been ordained by God for the Jews to do. And so this would be where they uh, dismissed his law, they didn't follow his ordinances, and instead of worshiping God, they went after strange gods and worshiped idols. So these things all are what that word transgression holds and means. And so we looked over in Ezekiel 36 and saw that at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, God saves the Jewish people for his own namesake. And in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, it's a very startling description because it matches to New Testament Um, Theology that God will give them a new heart, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, that He'll sprinkle them clean with water, and that He'll put His spirit within them. The same things that happen to someone who places faith in Christ in the New Testament era. And so, with that salvation taking out their heart, then the Jewish people during the millennial kingdom will have a heart to do the laws and the ordinances of God. Because as we saw when we studied Ezekiel, the sacrificial system goes on during the Millennial Kingdom, not for the forgiveness of sins, but to commemorate what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. In the Old Testament, it foreshadowed what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. In the Millennial Kingdom, it commemorates what he did do. But the sacrifices and all continue to go on in the temple of God during the millennial kingdom. And the Jews will have a heart that's been changed to do those things and to obey them. So in that kingdom, in the Jews' heart, in Jerusalem, they will obey God and they'll follow after his ordinances. And that's what this, to finish the transgression, speaks of. They'll no longer be wayward, but they'll be observing the things that God desires for them to desert. desert. To do, and they'll want to do them because of their changed hearts. And so that's the finish the transgression, the first statement. So this morning we pick up with this second statement to make an end of sin, which is closely related to the one we looked at last week to finish the transgression, but it's not exactly the same. Okay, so we'll walk through this to see if we can make that distinction between um, what to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin means. And again, this prophecy is given to Daniel for the Jews and Jerusalem. Always important to keep that in mind. You have to narrow the scope when you look at these things and what's being prophesied here. There are things that will affect the whole world, no doubt about that. We'll get into those, but when Gabriel starts this, and he he says, Daniel, these things have been decreed for your people and your city, the Jews in Jerusalem. So that's what these six things pertain to. Now, when I read to make an end of sin, my mind goes and says, okay, that means there will be no more sin, right? That's what you would think. But I don't think that is what it means, because during the Millennial Kingdom, there is still unregenerate people. There is still sin. And so it doesn't mean that there will be sinless perfection at the end of these 70 weeks. It doesn't mean that, because at the end of the Millennial reign, we know there's a, a great revolt against Jesus Christ once again. Those are unregenerate people. So it doesn't mean that sin is done away with forever. So what does it mean would be the appropriate question, right? Um, I think this, this statement is more from the standpoint of God than it is from the standpoint of men. And we've been given the mind of Christ, so we're supposed to think like God but that takes some effort to quit thinking like we did before we were saved to change the way that we think about things after we're saved. And so I think this is one of those places where this is from the perspective of God who is not bound by time, not bound by any kind of space like we are, but is sovereign over all that is happening and sees things in a different way than we do, so we need to think like he does in this particular verse or in this particular phrase. And I'll I'll try to explain what I mean um, as we go through this. Now, from God's perspective, the end of sin, the defeat of sin, the victory over sin was accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross. And that will certainly have application from our standpoint in time and space, but from God, it was done and it's over with. And that's the way the scriptures present it. And we wanna look at a few of those things to make an end of sin. Now, if you look down in verse 26, I believe it is, trying to put some of these things together. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after 62 weeks, and those 62 weeks, if we looked at the details, which we will do, would follow seven weeks. So at the end of the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off, from Daniel's perspective future, from our perspective in the past, and just, because these six things will be accomplished during the 70 weeks doesn't mean that they all are accomplished at the end of the 70 weeks, like we saw with the one last week to finish the transgression. That doesn't happen until the end of the 70th week. But here we see that the Messiah is cut off at the end of the 69th week, which is clearly within the 70 weeks. And so everything doesn't happen at the end. This one in particular doesn't happen at the end. It happens at the end of the 69th week. And I believe this is speaking of the defeat of sin that occurred on the cross, and especially when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And I'll try to explain why I think that way. There are several... um, Passages in the New Testament that present it that way. The first I want to look at is at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is the chapter that's known as the resurrection chapter. This is where Paul gives the order of the resurrections, Christ being the first fruits. And then he goes on and he enumerates the various resurrections that are going to take place. This is also the place where he talks about what I believe is the rapture where people will be caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye. And so that's the passage that I want to read. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. So in the context of resurrection, Christ being the first fruits of that resurrection, beginning in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, For this, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So this, we know that sin leads to death, and that death that the sin leads to is eternal death, but in combination with that is the death of this physical body. When God first created, before the fall, there was to be no death, but God ordained that they would sin, and that sin would bring about death, that the body will return to dust. That was one of the parts of the curse, if you remember. So, in speaking in this verse, Paul states that that death, both the physical and the eternal, have been put down and that Christ was victorious over them. And so that penalty for death is done away with. It's been defeated. And so that is, from God's perspective, the end of, the, of sin itself, which brought about all these consequences because the consequences have been dealt with. The, the, the penalty and the power of sin has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So from God's perspective, when Christ died on the cross, sin was defeated. And that's even the way the scripture speaks about us today, even though we still live in the physical flesh. That sin has been defeated in the life of the believer. Now, I always don't look like that. I don't always act like that. But that doesn't change the truth that for the believer, sin has been defeated. There is no sin that I commit in my daily life that I couldn't, that I don't have the power not to commit. No sin in my life that God has not given me, you remember what Peter says, everything pertaining to life and godliness, meaning I have everything I need at my disposal now presently in this life so that any time that I sin it's because I choose to sin and choose not to call upon the power of the Spirit to resist the enemy, to call upon God's help. There's no sin that comes into our lives that we could not defeat. Now, that's a hard truth sometimes to accept when you see yourself possibly doing the same thing over and over again, right? And, but that doesn't mean that you have to continue to live that way. Now, the author of Hebrews speaks to this defeat of sin in the life of the believer over in Hebrews chapter 9. And again, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you because there are things that I do that I wish I didn't do, but I still continue to do them. That even though I strive not to do them, I still do them. But that doesn't mean that's going to be that way forever during my life because God, I do believe, has given us everything that we need to overcome sin. It's our lack of faithfulness and devotion and love for Jesus Christ that causes me to sin. Now, Hebrews 9, verse 24. Now I'll read several verses here. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own otherwise he meaning christ would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. So you notice the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews says that the consummation of the ages has already occurred. And that, God, that Christ with his own blood has already gone into the heavenly place and sprinkled the true altar with his blood, that he might put an end to sin. So from God's perspective, although we can't see it, we weren't there, we only can read about it and understand it and believe it, but from God's perspective, as soon as Christ went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled his blood, it was done. There's no more to be done. Otherwise, Christ would have to be sacrificed again and again and again. And the scripture says, no, that's not how it is. That when Christ was sacrificed, went into the holy place, sprinkled his blood at the consummation of the ages, sin was done away with. So while we're still trapped in our humanness and we still sin, from God's perspective, that sin has already been dealt with and already been put away. And even for people who haven't been born yet, potentially, and the sins they will commit, that the sacrifice of Christ has already been cut co- will already cover those. So, from God's perspective, the way He thinks about this, the way we ought to think about this, is that sin has already been defeated, it's already been put away. And that should bolster our faithfulness not to sin. Because it has been defeated. It's just when we think about it and we think about our lives and we think about our weakness. I often don't think about the fact that the sin that I'm about to commit has already been defeated and it doesn't have any power over me. I've been circumcised in my flesh so that the sin principle in the life of me as a believer has been cut out, has been removed, and yet I don't act like it sometimes because we're still trapped in our humanness. God didn't remove us from our humanness. He could have. But he wanted us to understand that the power that he provided is to us as humans and is the proof of our faith in Christ Jesus as we overcome more and more and more of the sins that we commit in life. And so from God's perspective, thinking about what Gabriel spoke to Daniel, there's already been an end to sin. It's already been dealt with. He made it, when Christ died on the cross and rose again, went to heaven, sprinkled that altar, that provision has been made for sin. It's done. The end of sin has already been accomplished. It was accomplished at the end of the 69th week of this prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel. Now, like I said, I, I do believe there will be sin in the Millennial Kingdom. This is why Revelations 2.27 speaks of Jesus Christ not only ruling, but ruling with an iron rod. Why would he need an iron rod if there was perfect righteousness, if there was no sin? He wouldn't need an iron rod if everybody were true believers and obeyed him in every, every aspect at all times. But he rules with an iron rod during the Millennial Kingdom because if there is an uprising. If there is sin that begins to abound, he'll crush it with an iron rod. And this is why I believe, based on Revelation chapter 5, that the those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ since the resurrection will all reign with Jesus Christ upon, upon the planet so that we, under the auspices of Jesus Christ, will be the ones who help control the sinful people that are still in the world nowhere in scripture and although i have heard people teach this nowhere in scripture first of all does it say that everybody is killed in that final battle that's given in revelation especially unbelievers nowhere does it say that so i believe there are people who live through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom that are not true believers, that don't place faith in Jesus Christ. And they have children during the millennial kingdom. And life goes on during the millennial kingdom. Now, in Jerusalem and the Jews, a lot of very specific things happen. But in the rest of the planet, life goes on. And all those people aren't believers. There may be some believers out there in the whole world. And think about this, that the world has changed, right? There's not as much disease and not as much um, uh, pestilence and things that take people's lives. So you'd expect people might live for a long time. And if they have children, those children might live for a long time. So the population of the planet may grow beyond what we know today. During the moon, millenn- I mean, it's a thousand years, right? If you go back a thousand years from now, back to 1822, there were nowhere near as many people on the planet as are here today, close to 7 billion people. There were nowhere near that many. So you go for a 1,000 years under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, where there aren't lots of murders and aren't people committing crimes and all of this going on because there are saints ruling over people with an iron rod to keep them in line, to cause them to worship Jesus Christ. Even though they don't place faith in him, they still will honor him they'll parade before him and give him his due honor because they'll recognize who he is. Then there could be a lot of people that are on the planet at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now at that time, after the millennial kingdom, after that final battle that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 as opposed to 19, then there will be judgment. And then there will be no unbelievers on the in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth. No unbelievers there, it's just believers in the eternal kingdom of God. I think Paul alludes to that beautifully, just in front of what you were referring to in first Corinthians fifteen, thin to go back up to verse twenty. Right. right yeah first corinthians uh fifteen twenty three until the end yeah and i mean paul is so particular in first corinthians 15 so careful in the way that he sequences and orders things that is clear how things are going to are going to happen i mean it's, it's not left to chance and, you know, and I think Paul got this when he was taught by Christ for three years, and Christ just laid it all out. And so here is Paul, from Christ Jesus, giving us the plan for, that leads into eternity. And, and in that, sin is defeated with the death of Christ Jesus, not at the end. Now, death is destroyed at the end. Because there is no more death, because there is no more sin in the in the perfect kingdom of God, there's only righteousness. But during this age, sin has already been defeated. There's already been a made an end to sin. And it all fits perfectly in his putting his enemies under his feet. Right. Yep. In this very moment, he is doing exactly that. Yeah, and it will be made manifest when God desires for it to be made manifest. So, all the way back to Daniel chapter 9, I think you get a sense of what God means when he gives Daniel a message that says there's an end of sin. Doesn't mean sinless perfection from during these 70 weeks somehow. Not at all. It means that the power and the sting of sin has been defeated in the 69th week by the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection thereafter. That an end of sin has been accomplished. And so you've got the end of the transgression, which is the Jews themselves stopping their rebellion against God, obeying his ordinances and his laws and his sacrificial system and all that he caused them to do. And then, previous to that, you have an end of sin that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross when, when the Messiah was cut off. And so those two things, one yet to be accomplished, the changing of the Jews, one already accomplished from our perspective in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They're they're similar, they're related, no doubt, but one is for a specific people. One is for all those who place faith in Jesus Christ. Both will be true. So then he goes on and he continues to lay out to Daniel a third thing. And so he says, After to make an end of sin, he says to make atonement for iniquity. Okay, atonement is related to sin, right? We think of the cross of Christ, but it's not the same thing. There's a difference between putting an end to sin, stopping the transgression of the Jews, and atonement for iniquity. Now, this word iniquity, uh, not one that I use every day walking around talking about that I've committed iniquity, right? It's not the... But iniquity is a a very interesting term. Um, It means more than just the sins that are committed. It's a broader term than that. And probably the the best way to get a sense of what this word means is to look at where it's used in other places in the scriptures. And probably one of the best ones is in Genesis chapter 4. You wouldn't think that, but that's where this term is used that I want to point at. And you'll see that this term iniquity means more than just sins that are committed. It's broader than that. So in in Genesis four, we have the story of Cain and Abel, and the murder of Abel by Cain, okay? And then God then speaks to Cain, and in speaking to Cain, we get a sense of what this word iniquity means. So if you look down in Genesis four, beginning in verse eight, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Where is Abel your brother?' And he said, "'I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper?' He said, "'What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is, in, is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed fr- from the ground, which has opened up has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, "My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me from, driven me this day from the face of the ground. And, your face, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Don't know what that sign is, but... So, God pronounces a severe judgment on Cain. And you'll notice that Cain responds to God and says, my punishment is too much. Well, that word for punishment is the same word for iniquity in Daniel 9.24. So, instead of just being sins that are committed, It carries with it the consequences of the sin, the punishment for the sin. And here you see Cain's life goes from cultivating the ground and producing bountiful uh, crops, to being a vagrant, to having nothing, to being miserable in life for the rest of his life, which would go on for quite a while. So Cain bore the misery and the agony and the punishment of his sin for the rest of his life and into eternity. So this word for iniquity, which is the word for punishment here, is broader than just the sin. It carries with it the consequences of the sin. And we know that well, right? Today, while someone may be forgiven of their sins, there often are consequences of that sin that go on. I mean, a murderer can come to faith on death row, but that doesn't alleviate the penalty that he's still gonna suffer for the crime that he committed. People can sin against their marriage and be divorced, and there are huge consequences that go on for the rest of their lives, but the sin can be forgiven but the consequences are still there. So this, too, that Gabriel speaks to Daniel to make atonement for not only the sin, but all the consequences that go with it, all the results of that sin, not the least of which, if someone never repents, never places faith in Jesus Christ, is eternal death. So atonement for iniquity, atonement for the sins and the consequences that come as a result of the sins. Now you think about, okay, that's going to be accomplished within the 70 weeks. Well, when and how was that accomplished if it has been accomplished already? And we know, we think of the death of Jesus Christ as atonement for our sins. Now, the fact that there has to be atonement for iniquity, for sins and their consequences, means that there is a price to be paid when sins are committed. And we know no one is exempt from sin, right? That all of us, And all the unbelievers on the planet and all the believers and everybody who's ever lived since the very beginning have all sinned against God. So everybody has consequences and a penalty that needs to be paid to an almighty God who hates sin. That's the fact of scripture. That's what this verse is talking about when it says atonement for iniquity. There is a penalty. There is uh, compensation required for sin. It's implied in the statement that you need atonement for iniquity. Something needs to do away with those consequences to pay the price that is required by sin. Now, Again, the New Testament speaks of this clearly. And in the the book that changed my theology forever, in Colossians chapter two, the scriptures speak to this very thing. So Colossians chapter two and verse 13. when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with them, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. So every person who's ever lived Has a certificate of debt to God that lists the sins and the consequences of those sins. God's keeping account because when He makes judgment of people, He opens the books, which is the books of the deeds of the people. And those deeds are what is written on the certificate of debt. There is a recompense, there is a price there is something to be paid for the penalties of sin and what Colossians chapter 2 says is that if you place faith in Jesus Christ then your debt your deed of all the debts that you owe God has been nailed to the cross it's been stamped as paid in full mind-boggling thought that God would cancel not only the sin debt but also the consequences of sin debt which would lead to eternal death. That he's canceled all that. That Jesus Christ in his death nailed that to the cross. It was all covered. Paid in full. You know, and it says the decrees of God, which were hostile to us. Well, what would that be? Well, one of those decrees would be given in Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that sin is what? Death. Death. That's a decree of God. That's unchangeable. God has made that declaration. That if you have sin and you have a sin debt that has not been paid, then you will experience eternal death. That's a decree of God that was hostile to us as unbelievers. I mean another one of those is given, the, I mean we could go to a lot of decrees that God has made that were hostile to unbelievers, but You go to Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, where the scripture says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. A decree of God, that there's salvation only in Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of people who are religious, they practice good morals, they try not to sin, they're kind people, they help other people, they do a lot of good works. But if they don't place faith in Jesus Christ, the decree of God is there's no forgiveness of sins. And the penalty for that sin by the other decree of God is eternal death. Those things are hostile against unbelievers. They condemn unbelievers in their sin. But yet they're the decrees of God and there's a sin debt that must be paid for iniquity. Iniquity brings with it punishment. That's what the word means. There are consequences to sins, and the worst consequence of all is eternal death. And so, Gabriel, speaking to Daniel, says, That during these 70 weeks, there will be atonement for iniquity. That sin will be forgiven and the consequences of sin will be dealt with. And of course, we know and thank God and praise Jesus Christ that his death on the cross canceled our certificates of death if we place faith in Jesus Christ. Every person who places faith in Jesus Christ, God immediately stamps that certificate of debt as paid in full. Even though we may continue to sin, we may have future sins that we commit after salvation, God says it's all covered in that certificate of debt that's been canceled. It's great imagery, is it not? I mean, God is keeping records He's keeping account so that when people come before God in the judgment and they say, but God, I did this, and God, I did this, and God, I did this. And he said, there's salvation only in one name, and that's Jesus Christ, and you never trusted him. I never knew you. So you pay the consequences of sin yourself. Whereas for the believer, we go before God and Jesus Christ stands up and says, Father, I covered their sin debt in my death on the cross. It's been stamped as paid in full by my sacrifice. And so he ushers us into his kingdom. And there's great glory and rejoicing as opposed to in weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we know that what Gabriel spoke to Daniel here in the doing away with iniquity, the atonement for iniquity has been accomplished already. Again, back at the end of the 69th week in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's two of these that were done previously prior to the end of the 70th week in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Both the end of sin and the atonement for iniquity. Those have been accomplished, and thank God they have. And we have the great privilege of living in the age when those things have already been done. So that's three of the six, right? Three of the six. There's three more to come yet. I mean, we still um, have to walk through those, and we'll go through them as meticulously if the Lord wills, as we have these. And they have a a lot to speak to us, just like these first three did. So we'll pick up with that next time, if the Lord wills. Thanks for your time.